The Covenant Podcast exists to discuss doctrine, theology, and the biblical worldview from a covenantal Baptist perspective. We pray that this resource will be edifying to you and glorifying to the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, let's get started. Welcome to the Covenant Podcast. Jimmy Johnson here with my co-host, Austin McCormick, and we have the privilege of having Dr. Sam Waldron on again with us, this time to talk about cessationism and continuationism. So welcome again to the podcast, Dr. Waldron. Thank you, guys. Good to be here again with you. Dr. Waldron, to start off our discussion, can you give us some definitions for cessationism and continuationism? Sure. Um, well, I uh, thought I should make sure I was consistent with myself. So this is what I've written in to be continued, question mark. Uh, continuationism is the teaching that at least some of the miraculous gifts assumed and described in the Bible ought to continue at the church. And in fact, do continue to be given to the church. And so... Um, uh, that's uh, and sometimes these uh, uh, miraculous gifts are described as the charismatic gifts. I'm not sure that's the best terminology. Um, and so, uh, and keywords are at least at least some of. Um, I think there may be some charismatics today that don't want to claim, for instance, that apostles of Christ continue, or some continuationists at least. But that's that's the definition. So cessationism is the teaching. In, in opposition to that, that the miraculous gifts assumed and described in the Bible do not continue in the church today, are not given to the church today. And piggybacking off of that question, um, what are the miraculous gifts, and can you give us a brief definition of each each of them? Sure. Well, let me start by saying <clears throat> that uh, there may be some dispute about some of the secondary uh, gifts, words of wisdom, words of knowledge, whether those are uh, miraculous gifts or not. Usually when the miraculous gifts are in mind, however, there are, there are, four, there are really four gifts, at least in my view, that uh, are we're talking about apostles of Christ, prophets, tongue speakers, and miracle workers. Those are the four gifts that I think are the major gifts that come up for discussion when we're talking about the, the charismatic gifts or the miraculous gifts. Following off of that question, uh, can you provide us with some historical background information for the debate between uh, continuationism and cessationism? Sure. Um, well, at various times in church history, um, movements have arisen that are very similar to uh, what happened in the beginning of the 20th century with the uh, Pentecostalist revivals uh, in the United States, and then that spreading around the world in many respects. Uh, <clears throat> in the early church, there was a movement called Montanism, that when it studies has studied has some, you know, really surprising uh, parallels to the Pentecostalist movement. Um, 
and that uh, that movement arose around the middle of the uh, <clears throat> middle to the end of the second century. Uh, it involved the claim to continuing prophecy. It involved uh, the fact that uh, which uh, what's common to Pentecostalism, and that's um, the introduction of women into the ministry of the church, into the uh, uh, pastoral ministry of the church. It involved um, um, a strong kind of millenarianism. Uh, premillennialism uh, was characteristic of of uh, Montanism, and those are characteristics that uh, have uh, kind of showed up together again and again in the uh, uh, eruption of, uh, of of movements like this. There were the uh, many times some Baptists like to trace themselves back to the Anabaptist of the Reformation. The fact of the matter is that Gordon H. William, G. H. Williams, in his book Radical Reformation, has shown that there were several forms of Anabaptism, and one of those. Uh, of the three kinds of Anabaptist that he talks about, uh, talks about were spiritualist Anabaptists. And again, they laid claim to the miraculous gifts as well. Um, and, um, and then you have the, you have the modern movement, which began with Pentecostalism in the early late 18th, uh, late 19th, early 20th century. And some of the so-called revivals associated with that. Then you had um, coming out of that more towards the middle of the century, the charismatic movement, which had certain distinctions and differences, uh, both in terms of its ethos and doctrine from Pentecostalism. And then the third wave movement associated with the vineyard and uh and some movements like that, and and which characterizes some of the more well-known continuationists today. And so the term continuationism actually is a good identification of the third wave movement today, because the third wave has has rejected some of the typical teachings of the charismatic movement. Uh, for instance, that uh, tongues is a sign of being converted, or or the idea of the baptism of the Spirit being a kind of second blessing. These things are not characteristic of third wave continuationism. A third wave continuationism simply asserts the continuation primarily of the gifts of prophecy in tongues. All three of us, to my knowledge, are cessationists as we subscribe to the 1689 confession. But with that said, what are some of the best arguments that you've heard for continuationism, and can you respond to some of them, maybe? Sure. Uh, a number of years ago, when I first began to study this issue, and and you have to know, I, 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 did, haven't, I wasn't raised in the charismatic church. I have no experience of charismatic churches. I've been in Baptist churches and then Reformed Baptist churches my entire life. Um, so I didn't have any, um, you know, personal acquaintance with with these things. I only had secondhand knowledge uh, from what people had told me. I began to study some of their arguments and talk to people who had been charismatics. Um, and... Uh, and I, 
I was impressed uh, uh, with how plausible certain of the arguments I was coming across were. Um, for instance, um, Ephesians 4 and uh, its statement, I don't think we have to read it. I think it's familiar to most of us. Ephesians 4 and its statement that um, Christ God has given gifts to the church, apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastor, teachers, until we all come to the uh, to a, a mature man to the fullness of the measure of the stature of Christ. Well, this, the charismatic argument is um, that hasn't happened yet. The gifts are given so that 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 might happen, and and therefore the gifts must continue to be given until that result is achieved. Um, that's a very simplified version of the argument, uh, uh, and I thought, well, I hadn't thought about that before, but then. Uh, my response after thinking about it for a while is, look, um, the uh, the argument proves too much unless you want to argue that Christ is still giving apostles of Christ to the church. Then the argument proves way too much because it says all four of those gifts are being given to the church uh, for the sake of achieving of the mature man. But then the other thing that I, I realized is that, look, while the gifts may be given uh, to the church, but uh, and and the individual men, the apostles and prophets, may may not need no longer exist, but the church still has what they prophesied, still has uh, what uh, the early church fathers called the memoirs of the apostles, and so. Uh, whether or not the church still has living apostles or prophets, we still have the product of their work, and it is that product of their work, uh, the, the word of God, the inscripturated word of God, that is intended to bring the church to uh, the fullness of the measure of the stature of Christ. And this does not require living apostles. Um, I tried to, uh, sometimes I try to put this graphically and surprisingly in some occasions when I've been preaching by, by saying, you know, look, I believe that there's prophecy in the church today. And then I turn to book to turn to the book of Revelation and say, see, this is prophecy. It's in the church today. But of course, the fact that the book of Revelation uh, is prophecy and it's in the church today doesn't require that there be living prophets. Um, but perhaps the most uh, uh, compelling argument that I have heard from charismatics, and one which I take a little bit different way of responding to than a lot of cessationists, is found in 1 Corinthians 13. And perhaps it would be good if we turn to that passage. Uh, 1 Corinthians 13, 8, 9, and 10 is the key passage. In some respects, this argument is very similar to the one based on Ephesians 4, but uh, I think uh, has some peculiarities about it that make it even more plausible, I think, to the popular mind. First Corinthians 13, 8, love never fails, but, are, but if there are gifts of prophecy, they will be done away. If there are tongues, they will cease. If there is knowledge, it will be done away. And the verse 9, for we know in part, and we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial will be done 
away. Now, again, the argument is is really very interesting. Um, it basically says, look, the text says when the perfect comes, the partial will be done away. The partial are the gifts of tongues and prophecy. Uh, the perfect is the second coming of Christ. And therefore, when it's only when Christ comes back that the the gifts, uh, the the partial gifts will be done away with. And uh, and therefore, we should expect in context here, uh, the gifts of tongues and prophecies to prophecy to continue to Christ's second coming. Now, uh, that was that was kind of a, you know, uh, uh, when I first, when I first ran across that, I thought, wow, I hadn't thought about that before. And, um, and, and had to do uh, uh, a little digging for myself to satisfy myself that I really un- understood the passage. And after my digging, I found myself at odds with a lot of other cessationists in terms of how I deal with the passage. Uh, so let me give credit where creditors do a lot of fine men and fine exegetes do not, uh, do not agree with the charismatics. And I'll have to say myself that the perfect is a reference to the second coming of Christ or the condition ushered in by the second coming of Christ or the eternal state. Uh, they believe it's, uh, it's a reference to the perfect, perfected canon. And so the, uh, so their point, their their reading of the text would be when the perfected canon comes, the partial will be done away, and of course that fits perfectly with a cessationist position. And there are fine men who hold that position that I respect very very highly. However, uh, in this case, I cannot agree with their exegesis because it seems fairly clear to me um, that in this context, the perfect is a reference to the condition utter, utter, uh, ushered in, the knowledge provided to us uh, when uh, the Christ Christ comes again, and then, and and the reason I think that is the language of verses eleven and twelve. It talks about the contrast between being a child and becoming a man, and uh, especially verse twelve. For now we see in a mirror dimly. But then face to face, now I know in part, but then I will know fully, just as I also have been fully known. Um, and then it goes on to say, now faith, hope, and love abide these three, but the greatest of these is love. And of course, the greatest is love, because it continues when faith becomes sight and when hope is fulfilled. Passages like that, compared with parallel scripture, to me, uh, uh, convince me that the perfect that we're talking about here is the the condition ushered in by the second coming of Christ, the eternal state, which is described as knowing fully. Um, but of course, if I agree with the, the charismatics or the continuationist about that reading of the passage, the question becomes, how do I, uh, how do I avoid their conclusion that the partial gifts must continue to the second coming of Christ? Um, and, uh, that's, that's an important question. Uh, the guy that really helped me uh, on this, um, and I'm trying to remember which book of his it is, but Richard Gaffin's, uh, uh, treatment of this passage was quite suggestive to me. Um, 
And I'm not saying that he agrees with me in every detail of what I'm about to say, but it was it was clues that he gave me that led me to what I think is the proper interpretation of the passage. And so, and what is that interpretation? Well, it, it lies uh, very importantly with the a meaning of perfect and partial in 1 Corinthians 13.10. Um, and the simple point I want to make, and I think it's confirmed by the context, is that the perfect is not the perfect gift. It's the perfect knowledge. And and by parity, uh, an analogy then, the partial cannot be equ- equated with the gifts of tongues and prophecy. It's not the partial gifts that's contrasted with the perfect gift in 1 Corinthians 13.10. The partial is not the gifts of tongues and prophecy themselves. It is the knowledge imparted through those gifts. And if I think if you look at the preceding verses, verses 8 and 9, that becomes clear. Love never fails, but if there are, and here um, the New American Standard that I normally like very much fails me because I think it does not translate the verse correctly. Love never fails, but the Greek says, if there are prophecies, not gifts of prophecy, prophecies, this, the word prophecy is in the plural and refers to uh, not the gift itself, but the but the the actual prophecy or knowledge imparted through the gift. If there are prophecies, they will be done away. Same thing, if there are tongues, they will cease. If there is knowledge, it will be done away. So the emphasis here is already on the result of the gifts and not on the gifts themselves. Similarly, in verse 9, for we know in part and we prophesy in part, the, the emphasis again on the partial knowledge imparted through the gifts of tongues and prophecy. So that when you come to verse verse 10 uh, and you read of the perfect, <clears throat> which clearly in the succeeding context is knowing fully just as we are fully known, it's, it's the condition of perfect knowledge, uh, then the contrast cannot be with perfect knowledge and partial gifts. The partial here must be a reference to the partial knowledge imparted through the gifts. And so the text does not actually explicitly say, it does not say at all that the gifts of tongues and prophecy continue. It only says the partial knowledge uh, that were given through the gifts of tongues and prophecy in part uh, continue until the perfect. And so um, that's my understanding of, of what I think is the most plausible argument that charismatics can bring. Um, and what that means, just to put a bow on it, what that means is um, um, neither, in my view, charismatics or continuationists nor cessationists can uh, uh, base their view uh, on this passage. All right. Uh, the passage simply isn't clear, in my view, about when the gifts and to- of tongues and prophecy uh, pass away. It is clear about when the partial knowledge passes away. I think it's clear about when the perfect comes. Uh, but so 
I don't think that uh, cessationists can prove that the perfect is the perfected canon. And I don't think the continuationists can prove that the partial gifts, uh, that the partial is the gifts of tongues and prophecy, which continue till the second coming of Christ. I think that question, quite frankly, is left open by the passage. Um, but, but here's the point. If that question is left open by the passage, uh, charis- a continuationist, charismatics can't use it as an argument. It simply isn't clear. And so I would disagree with both charismatics who think they have a, a rock solid argument for their position here and with cessationists who think, uh, in, in opposition that they have a rock solid argument here. I simply don't think the passage is clear about the matter and that, and the whole issue has to be decided on, a, on another basis. Well, uh, I'm excited to talk about that basis. I think you hit on it a little bit in the beginning of our last question. Uh, what is your main argument against continuationism? And can you parse it out a little bit for us in some detail? Sure. Well, my main argument is is this. And, and it, it has to do with the definition of the gifts, really. Um, my main argument begins, I call it the cascade argument, because I think it has to be followed in a certain way, okay? Um, The cascade argument basically begins by saying that when charismatics say that all the miraculous gifts continued, and a local preacher at a local uh, New Calvinist church actually said that about a month ago, all the miraculous gifts continue. We went on to... uh, um, actually uh, uh, qualify that in a couple of different ways. But um, my, my, my point is simply this. Uh, many, many continuationists actually don't believe that. They, they really don't believe. They're, they're forgetting a crucial fact, and on a fact that many of them actually believe, uh, that, that apostles of Christ do not continue in the world today. So that's where that's where I begin my argument to be continued. I begin my argument by saying, well, look, we have to understand uh, what apostles of Christ are. And so I distinguish between apostles of Christ and and uh, apostles of churches, um, missionaries, um, associational representatives uh, of local churches can be called apostles in the New Testament, because an apostle is simply a sent one. And um, and so just like the term elder can have a more general meaning and a more specific technical meaning of a church office, same thing with deacon. Uh, there are also a variety of meaning for the terms of term apostle in the New Testament. It can, it can describe what some people have called big A apostles, and it can describe what have been called small A apostles. I prefer the language of it can describe apostles of churches, and it can also describe apostles of Christ. Uh, of course, the whole uh, the whole authority of an apostle, the whole identity of an apostle, uh, is uh, controlled by the, by whose apostle he is. Um, Ritterboss, Herman Ritterboss, in his book on uh, the New Testament canon. Uh, says that in 
uh, the Aramaic language spoken by Jews at the time of the New Testament, uh, they had a very important saying that kind of crystallizes what an apostle is. Uh, and it's this, the shiliak, it's the Aramaic form of the Hebrew verb shalak, the sent one. The shiliak of a man is as the man himself. Uh, so what you really have in the term apostle in the New Testament is the translation of that Aramaic uh, word in that Hebrew idea. And so the shiliak of a man is as the man himself. So the authority of a shiliak, uh, a shiliak depends on who the man is that's in him. Uh, if, uh, if the man is simply a local church, then he has the authority of that local church. But if the man is Christ, then you see it's an entirely different matter. Then the saying, and, and, and of course, your, your minds can go to many passages in the New Testament that confirm this idea of apostle. Uh, then, uh, the Gileac of a man being as the man himself being, means that the apostle of Christ is as Christ himself, which is a massive idea, a massively important idea. And, and this, this, this idea of, of the apostles of Christ being as the man himself, um, though I think it's hidden by our devotionalized, spiritualized way of reading the New Testament, is actually written large across the whole New Testament. This is why Matthew, Mark, and Luke all name specifically by name the ones appointed to be apostles by Christ. This is why um, uh, Christ said, as the Father sent me, so send I you, said that to the apostles of Christ. Uh, this is why Christ said, he who receives you receives me. Uh, and this is why Paul said, uh, if any man thinks he's a prophet or spiritual, let him acknowledge that the things that I say to you are the commandments of the Lord. Or he can say in another place, if any man uh, seeks a proof of the Christ who speaks in me. The apostles of Christ were as the man himself. And, and they had certain giftings which qualified them to be apostles. They, uh, and, and, and to make a long story short, there, there are at least three things you need to have to be a, uh, to be an apostle of Christ. You have to be directly appointed by Christ. You have to ha have seen the resurrected Lord. Am I not an apostle? Have I not seen Jesus Christ our Lord? And you have to have the, the, the miraculous sign gifts to attest your ministry as an apostle. The signs of a true apostle were done among you with all perseverance, Paul says uh, in 2 Corinthians 12, 12. So an apostle uh, of Christ is much different than the apostle of a church, the apostles of churches that are mentioned in Philippians 2 and 2 Corinthians 8. And, and when we've made that distinction so that we're not lumping every mention of an apostle into the same pot in the New Testament, then it becomes very clear that there are many things uh, in the New Testament that argue for the cessation of the apostolate. Um, you have the fact that the church is built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. You have the fact that, uh, that uh, no living man today has seen 
And and here I have to insist on the fact that what the Bible's talking about, seeing with their physical eyes, the resurrected Lord. You have the fact that, and, and we know that because Paul says, uh, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, this is one of the key verses on this subject, 1 Corinthians 15, um, he says in verses 7 and 8, then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared to me also, for I am the least of the apostles, not fit to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. Now here, in in at least a couple of different ways, Paul shuts the door on a, on a living apostles in the, of Christ in the world today. First of all, he implies that he's the last apostle to be appointed. But then uh, also he says he's the last one to have seen the resurrected Lord with his physical eyes. Um, now, I'm going to come to this in a second if, as we keep talking about this. But I need to say that the Bible makes a very important distinction between uh, what men like Moses in the Old Testament had and what the apostles of Christ had in terms of seeing the resurrected Lord with their physical eyes and the dreams and visions that are the characteristic way that God appeared to prophets. All right. It's a really important distinction and, uh, and we can't let people uh, fuzz it up or obscure it. Uh, having a vision of Christ is not seeing Christ our Lord. It's not what Paul's talking about in 1 Corinthians 9.1. It's not what Peter's talking about in Acts 1. Uh, it's not that at all. Those dreams and visions are different than seeing God face-to-face, like Moses did, and the apostles seeing the risen Christ. Okay. Now, so all of that being said, um, I, I list out in my books five my five arguments for uh, <clears throat> the cessation of the apostolate. And um, uh, uh, I'll just give them to you very briefly here. Um, the apostle explicitly states he was the last eyewitness of Christ's resurrection, the last apostle of Christ to be appointed. The apostle Paul clearly implies that the gift of being an apostle of Christ is no longer to be sought by Christians, because when Paul says seek the greatest gifts in First Corinthians fourteen, he doesn't he doesn't mention apostle. Uh, third, no modern apostle is capable of receiving the commendation of the original twelve apostles as Paul did in his day for his apostolate. The, the final witness to the closed character of the apostolate is the closed character of the canon. Um, the canon is closed, and even most continuationists agree with that. The question is why? What has changed? If there are living apostles of Christ, then they are as the man himself, and what they say, Christ said. And so how can the academy be closed under that circumstance? Now, um, but everybody's saying, well, that's got nothing to do with uh, with tongues and prophecy. No, no, it has everything to do with tongues and prophecy. Because if what I've said is true, if, 
if apostles of Christ are no longer given to the church today, then that has massive implications and uh, fractures uh, at the very foundation the charismatic argument. Why is that? Because because of what that uh, fellow said uh, a few weeks ago here in Owensboro. What he said was all the miraculous gifts continue. But even many continuationists don't agree that there are apostles of Christ. But the apostle of Christ is a gift given to the church, and it does not continue. Furthermore, it is the first and greatest gift of Christ given to the church, and it does not continue. Now, uh, by all that is reasonable, we have to say then that if the first and greatest gift of Christ given to the church does not continue, then it's clear that all, that not all the miraculous gifts continue. That's clear. And if that's true, then it, it leads, at least raises the distinct possibility that if the greatest gift does not continue, uh, the lesser gifts like prophecy, tongues, and miracle workers also do not continue. The other thing that's interesting about, about this, uh, uh, this first, uh, argue, this first point in the Castaicate argument is, the New Testament clearly associates the impartation of miraculous gifts to the presence of living apostles. Now, I don't want to uh, argue this too dogmatically on this basis alone, but Acts chapter 8 is very clear that when Philip went to Samaria, he preached the gospel. People believed. They were baptized. Obviously, they thought it was genuine conversion. Uh, but it was only when the apostles came down from Jerusalem and laid their hands on the new believers that the, that the miraculous gifts of, say, tongues and prophecies, tongues and prophecy and miracle, and miracle working were imparted to these believers. So at least that passage very clearly associates the other miraculous gifts and the impartation of the other miraculous gifts to the presence of living apostles. Well, so that's that's the that's the linchpin. That's the first uh, first cascade in my cascade argument uh, against uh, the continuation of the miraculous gifts. And um, happy happy to go and talk about prophecy and tongue speaking and so forth. But I don't want to move on, move to that too quickly because the significance of this argument just, we must not miss it. I remember when I was doing my PhD studies at Southern, I began to run across, I don't know what seminar I was in, these snide comments by, uh, scholars, well, uh, against cessationists, um, uh, that would say, well, how can they, how can they say that the gifts Christ give the church has ceased? And there'd be snide comments. And on the next page, they would admit that there, that there were no apostles today. Well, I'm saying, well, you have the same problem. If, if there are no apostles to, of Christ today, then one of the gifts have ceased. And it's not so silly to think then that other gifts might cease. And it's certainly true, explicit in the New Testament, I think, that, uh, 
at least one gift has ceased in the church. So how can how can you make these kind of snide comments about cessationists? I just uh, it uh, it it began to. I think I hope it was a holy irritation, but it began to be really irritating to read ridiculous statements like that. On the one page, uh, cessationists are stupid for thinking that gifts cease. On the next page, they're saying, admitting that apostles cease. Uh, it doesn't make any sense to me, and it still doesn't make any sense to me. So I, uh, so that's that's the starting point of my argument. Would you like me to uh, just kind of uh, walk walk down the rest of it then for you? Yeah, that would be great. This concludes part one of our conversation with Dr. Sam Waldron on the topic of cessationism. Stay tuned for next week's episode, as Dr. Waldron will further explain the topic of cessationism. Grace and peace to you. This episode is brought to you by our friends at Covenant Baptist Theological Seminary. CBTS exists to provide ministerial training in the context of a confessional local church. They are, among other things, confessional, Baptist, affordable, and accessible. They are also now fully accredited by the Association of Reformed Theological Seminaries. You can learn more about them at their website, which is cbtseminary.com. Org. Again, that is cbtseminary.org. Thank you for listening to the Covenant Podcast. If you've enjoyed this resource or you simply like the Covenant Podcast, head on over to our iTunes page, subscribe, and leave us a review. We are also available via Spotify, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, YouTube, and Podbean. Thank you for listening to the Covenant Podcast. Grace and peace to you.